0: The first cut on this record has been cross format focused for airplay success. The
1: men beat on the drums. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Kate Crawford. We talked about her book, Atlas of AI, Power, Politics and the Planetary Costs of Artificial Intelligence. We talked about why some proponents of AI are so convinced, against so much evidence, that systems of machine learning will truly be able to replicate human intelligence and how the extraordinary material impacts of AI systems from rare earth mining to electrical power needs, tend not to be discussed. We also talked about the early history of statistical analysis and the new discipline's relationship to eugenics. And finally, we discussed how workplace surveillance systems, in spite of their apparent novelty, are in some ways replicating the practices of managerial control of the early factory system. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon, and also by Verso Books, who have lots of excellent titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is Revolution, and Intellectual History by Enzo Traverso. In the book, Traverso reinterprets the history of 19th and 20th century revolutions by composing a constellation of dialectical images such as Marx's Locomotives of History, Alexandra Kollontai's Sexually Liberated Bodies, Auguste Blanqui's Barricades and Red Flags, and Lenin's Mummified Body, among others. It connects theories with the existential trajectories of the thinkers who elaborated them by sketching the diverse profiles of revolutionary intellectuals, from Marx and Bakunin to Luxembourg and the Bolsheviks. And finally, it analyses the entanglement between revolution and communism that so deeply shaped the history of the 20th century. Revolution, and intellectual history by Enzo Traverso is out now from Verso Books and one of their Verso Book Club reading selections this month. And Now to today's interview. Kate Crawford is a leading scholar of the social and political implications of artificial intelligence. Over her 20-year career, her work has focused on understanding large-scale data systems, machine learning and AI in the wider context of history, politics, labour and the environment. Kate is a research professor at USC Annenberg and an honorary professor at the University of Sydney. Her academic research has been published in journals such as Nature, New Media and Society, and Science, amongst many others. Her writing has also appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, and Harper's Magazine, among others. If you'd like to hear the extended hour-length version of today's interview, then please consider becoming a £3 supporter of the show on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash other to sign up. So in the introduction to the book, you begin with the story of clever Hans, a horse owned by the German horse trainer, Wilhelm von Osten, at the turn of the 20th century. And as you describe, Hans was alleged to be able to perform arithmetic and other intelligent tasks and was was exhibited throughout Germany. And then, of course, it was later shown that he was, he was not, in fact, performing these tasks, but was instead responding to the cues of his trainer. Could you explain why you start the book with this story uh, about Clever Hans and how that story illuminates some of the core arguments that you're making in the book about artificial intelligence?
0: So the story of Clever Hans is I think compelling from so many angles. I mean, he was genuinely a horse celebrity for uh. performing <laughs> these these kinds of 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 tasks that were defined as akin to human intelligence he would you know tap out the day of the week with his hoof he could perform simple sort of mathematical turns like 2 plus 2 or 3 plus 3 and the way in which he was embraced as, as representing this sort of new combination of human training and non-human intelligence, I think is incredibly important to, to trace and to understand. It touches on these themes of how we anthropomorphize the non-human, you know, how biases emerge, the politics of intelligence, if you will. And in fact, Hans also inspired a term in psychology, the so-called clever Hans effect or the observer expectancy effect to describe exactly that influence that you described between an experimenter's uh, intentions, even though they are you know not presented in any way that they can control, but they are unintentionally affecting their subjects. And so that relationship between Hans and von Osten, I think, points to these complex mechanisms by which biases and skews find their ways into systems and how systems are very much shaped by their makers. And also, frankly, how we become entangled with the phenomena that we study. In fact, of course, now clever Hans is also used, in fact, in machine learning itself as a cautionary tale that you can't always be sure of what a mathematical model has learned from the data it's been given. So even a system that can appear to perform spectacularly in training in a lab context can actually make terrible predictions when presented with data from the real world so i think in in these in these ways this story tells us something about the relationship between desire illusion action spectacle and ultimately, intelligence itself. And and I think this is something that we're seeing play out again in artificial intelligence, the way in which intelligence is made and, and what traps that can create. So, you know, in this sense, I think we see this practice of making intelligence is, is considerably broader than just, you know, a single horse or a single machine. It required, you know, validation from multiple institutions, you know, from the press, from academia, from schools. There was a commission around whether or not Hans was truly intelligent or not, not to mention the market forces that drove this sort of performance of intelligence.
1: A lot of people are kind of invested in, in Hans indeed being as intelligent as he appeared.
0: Precisely. It it was a constellation of these sort of financial, cultural, and and scientific interests. So that's, you know, I think we see these types of constellations reappear around artificial intelligence. And and certainly, I think sort of within that relationship, we see these sort of these two distinct mythologies emerge. And, And the first myth, of course, is that Non-human systems, be they computers or horses, are analogues for human minds. And I think, you know, that, that perspective assumes that with sufficient training or enough resources, you can just generate, you know, human-like intelligence from scratch without addressing these sorts of fundamental ways in which humans are embodied and relational and, and sort of obviously set within much wider ecologies and economies. But it's the second myth too, which is that intelligence is something that exists independently as though it was somehow natural or distinct from these social and historical and political forces. So, and I think that's where we start to see the way in which this concept concept of intelligence has really done forms of harm over many centuries. And we're seeing it repeat again in the field of artificial intelligence.
1: Just going back to the story of Clever Hans. so on first sight, and I think most people when encountering that story would assume that they're looking at a a case of deliberate deception and and trickery and that Von Austen was straightforwardly a conman of of some description. But in your accounting, Hans's handlers seem to have deceived themselves as as well as the watching public. So can you talk a bit about that and, and how it parallels how some working in the field of AI, in your view, are also deceiving themselves about the capabilities of the various machine learning projects that they're involved in.
0: I mean, in Von Austen's case, it was extremely genuine. He came from a long history of training animals to perform tasks that he saw as being uh, particularly emblematic of human intelligence. And, you know, he obviously, as somebody who deeply cared about this issue, had this really extraordinary connection with this horse that for years he could actually train this horse to do things that in many ways were quite simply remarkable in every sense of the word. Uh, so in that sense, I think he was someone who saw this as an important type of discovery. And in many ways, we can look to the machine learning industry and AI sort of writ large. And in that sense, I'm using AI here to speak about the entire industrial formulation and machine learning to speak of the more specific techniques which are currently in the ascendant. I think the people who are in this industry very genuinely believe that they are Doing good in the world, and that is a very strong ideological formulation in the industry. And certainly, if you look at some of the things that can be done with machine learning, you can do extraordinary, large-scale predictions and correlations with enormous sets of data. And some. Remarkable things come out of that. We can look to some of the work, of course, around climate change. Merely the idea of thinking about our planet as something that we can sense and understand in time is something that comes out of a lot of these techniques. However, it's when we start to see these ideas applied, in particular, to forms of social institutions, to human interactions, to a understanding of ourselves and others, where you really start to see the problems emerge. Now, I wouldn't say that's the the only problem, but it's certainly one of the most obvious kinds, where you start to see this slippage between what a system is purporting to do and its far wider impacts on the planet. And
1: why do you think there is this determination to see computation as very comparable to human intelligence? And what accounts for the strength of that belief that it must be theoretically possible for machines to be intelligent in, in the same way that humans are intelligent? Rather than thinking of AIs as having impressive but nevertheless very distinct capacities, I mean, is it simply that we are quite parochial in our thinking, in just in the same way as there's a tendency to attribute human capacities to animals, perhaps more so in the past? That, well, well, that, think that goes on to now, now as well, doesn't it? But, <laughs> um, but, but at a time when uh, computers didn't exist, for, for instance, and that the same move is made today regarding computation.
0: Well, actually, this has a long history, and, and certainly this sp- Belief that human intelligence can be formalized and reproduced by machines has been sort of axiomatic since the mid 20th century. We could go back to sort of 1950 when Alan Turing was predicting that ultimately we will reach a point soon where the general educated opinion is that we can speak of machines thinking without expecting to be contradicted. That was you know, his view. And obviously von Neumann, who then goes on to create von Neumann architectures, you know, claimed that the human nervous system itself was sort of prima facie digital. So there's this sort of very long tradition of thought in the computer sciences that you know, machines are ultimately just sort of representations of human minds. It's the sort of Cartesian dualism that sort of repeats endlessly over the last few decades. And I think that it's it's coming from, you know, a very specific line of thought where, you know, the idea that brains are simply information processes is, has just been broadly accepted. And of course, this has been the source of debates, um, you know, for decades. Hubert Dreyfus obviously wrote about, you know, what Computers can't do, and you've sort of pointed out that indeed human intelligence relies on many unconscious and subconscious processes, on bodies, and, and, and relationships to other humans that simply don't translate in the same way. And I think that that's something that we you know, we need to be reminded of that there, there always has been sort of a counter narrative to how to understand and work with artificial intelligence. It's just been lost, I think, by this current sort of dominant strand where you know. AI is seen as some type of you know, brain in a vat where we can simply use it to sort of make particular types of predictions. And, and this is something that, you know, I find particularly extraordinary when we look at the way in which AI is so often related to gameplay. You could think of something like, you know, AlphaGo as sort of being described as something that, you know, could play chess and could play go in ways that were superhuman or alien and this is a very again a very common trope this idea of sort of this sort of superhuman alien intelligence of of AI but in actual fact of course you know this is this is taking us right back to the roots of why games have been a preferred testing ground for AI you know they they present a closed world with defined parameters and clear victory conditions and you know that again sort of comes from the sort of World War II history of, of AI. But this is something that the historian of technology, Alex Campolo, and I have called an enchanted determinism. That these, these AI systems are seen as somehow enchanted, as beyond the known world, yet they're deterministic and that they discover these patterns that can be applied with. Predictive certainty to questions in everyday life, be it you know who should get a job interview or you know who should who should receive bail, for example. So I think in a sense we see this sort of repeated idea of enchanted determinism throughout the last fifty years of thinking around AI, but we particularly see it at the moment. It's this this idea that the uh, so, social anthropologist F. G. Bailey used to describe, obscuring by mystification, which I think is a lovely a lovely way of describing it, we see this so much in relation to fields like deep learning that, you know, we're told to sort of focus on the innovations of the method rather than the actual purpose of the thing itself or its wider costs.
1: If we turn to the first chapter of the book, so you begin that chapter writing about mining and the rare earth elements that are needed to produce computers and and AI systems, whether that's lithium mining in in Nevada and, and Bolivia or perhaps less well-known elements such as dysprosium and and terbium in China and other other places. And you describe the way in which we talk about computing in a way that obscures its materiality, particularly when it comes to the term the cloud, a term that obviously evokes insubstantiality and and disconnection from the earth. So could you say something just on how resource-intensive computation is and and how little awareness there tends to be of how much material stuff just has to be extracted and and utilised in order to create AI systems, uh, as well as the electrical power needs of of such si- systems, which are, are pretty extraordinary in and of themselves?
0: Well, certainly what I'm trying to do in Atlas of AI is, is offer a, a materialist philosophy of artificial intelligence. And, and by that, I mean a political economy of how AI is made in the hope that that might begin to suggest a different relationship to it as a way of constructing industrial power. And certainly when we look at you know the current popular industry narratives of AI, we, we do hear these very abstract ideas, these immaterial concepts of a computational cloud sort of far removed from earthly resources that you need to produce it, the sort of paradigm where technical innovation is all and the true costs are never revealed. And I think that this is designed to redact the physical planetary infrastructure needed to do AI at scale. And it leaves out these full environmental impacts, the hidden labor and the political deals that make it all possible. And, of course, here I'm indebted to the philosophers uh, Hart Negri who refer to the dual operations of abstraction and extraction in information capitalism that we're, you know, extracting away the material conditions of production while extracting more information and resources. Uh, And so I think in that sense of describing AI as fundamentally abstract distances it from the energy, the labor, and the capital needed to produce it and the many different types of mining that enable it. So in reality, of course, AI is born from salt lakes in Bolivia and mines in Indonesia and China, and it's constructed from crowd worker-labeled data sets, and it's used to navigate drones over Yemen and, and to direct immigration police in the United States. And when we look at this sort of wider topology of AI, we can see it really as an extractive industry of the 21st century. So if we begin with that material genesis and then move through its political economy, we start to look at the forms of inequality that support it. So for myself, you know, to, to really understand that required sort of Going and visiting the places where AI is made in the fullest sense, uh, you know, places where very few people go. Right? right, absolutely, because you know, so often, you know, when we hear about AI, we, we think about Silicon Valley, or we you know, we may at, at best sort of think about things like Siri and Cortana, or you know, these these ideas of you know how our iPhone might work. But really, do we think about where do these actual systems come from? So for me, I, I decided to sort of to turn away from the sort of Silicon Valley narrative and and literally just drive into the desert. So, you know, I begin the book by going to the last operating lithium mine, which is in Nevada in a place called Silver Peak. And, you know, this is a place that, of course, was stripped for its gold and silver resources in the 1800s and early 1900s, and then sort of lay fallow as a, as a ghost town until it was discovered uh, sort of in the later 20th century that it contained this enormous lake of lithium now lithium is is called gray gold you know it's of interest because you know it is essential for the production of rechargeable batteries which are a core component of so many of the systems that ai is built on and of course you have a few grams of this stuff in an iphone you have you know far more grams in something like an amazon echo and then you have over 60 kilograms of it to actually create something like a, a Tesla S model car. And by tracing those kinds of material layers, what you find is that, you know, lithium is actually something that we're extremely bad at extracting. We don't recycle it. We're, according to the most recent studies, we could be looking at severe shortages of lithium as soon as 2100 and possibly sooner if we don't get better at, at actually recycling it. And looking at this sort of material layer, looking at this gigantic layer lake in this sort of desert basin and seeing the ghost towns, you know, from the last round of mining really sort of, for me, brought to mind why we're actually seeing Silicon Valley repeat its history, sort of repeat what happened during the the, the gold and silver mining boom that really built the city. You know, Gray Brecken uses this fantastic metaphor of the way in which the actual sort of mining machinery that was used to carry miners down into the earth were then simply turned upside down and reversed to create the elevators that would draw people up into the city's skyscrapers. I I
1: thought that was a brilliant detail. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. I mean, his, his, his work here is, is just fantastic. And we're seeing it play out again because, of course, so many of the, the same sites that we used for extraction are now again re-enriching uh, Silicon Valley and, and the industry that subtends it. So in, in this sense, going to these locations, you know, I went to, to several around the world to sort of understand what others have called, I'm thinking of a Barnes work here of the idea of the planetary mine that sort of, the entire planet is being used as a sort of the extractive surface to sustain this industry. But of course, it extends not just through the mineralogical layers where, you know, we can think of AI as being made of rocks and brine and crude oil, but it of course then extends into the human layer, into how human labor is supporting these systems all along the supply chain. And then of course, finally, to our data, which is the sort of the latest extractive frontier.
1: On the subject of the the way the materiality of AI and and computation in general tends to be disavowed. I mean, one case that occurred to me where we actually see more discussion around the material impact is cryptocurrencies, and and particularly Bitcoin mining. And and, and in that case, we see a lot of discussion around the environmental impact and energy needs of, of cryptocurrencies. And I was wondering why that might be. And I was thinking, is it partly because Cryptocurrencies are regarded as somewhat disreputable and and perhaps occupying a somewhat grey area, legally speaking, in a way that is not true in the case of, of the platform giants, for instance, which are generally seen more positively.
0: I think that's exactly right. I think in some ways, you know, cryptocurrency has become the megafauna of, of this problem. It's sort of the spectacular example of what happens when you create a system that depends on, in fact, relies on as a sort of proof of work, this sort of enormous series of computational cycles that, you know, have ultimately created such an enormous drain on a planet that is already experiencing such you know, extremes of climate and, and we're looking at much worse to come. But in that sense, it's the fact that I think crypto lives in this somewhat more grey market area of commerce rather than looking at the ways in which so many of the systems that support the absolute sort of traditional economy are doing exactly the same. And, and part of it, I think, is the way in which there's been an intentional blindness to the growth towards sort of super compute and enormous GPU cycles that sit behind so many of the systems that we use every day. And and it does relate in some ways, it mirrors that history of mining, that the ways in which externalities were always justified as, well, this is the cost of doing business. I mean, we could go back to sort of the 1500s when Agricola, you know, the, the father of mineralogy said that it was clear to everybody that the gains from pulling minerals out of the earth did not equate to the loss in terms of the ecosystems, the lands and the peoples that are displaced. And and, and certainly that idea of, you know, the ex- Externalities of large-scale AI and planetary computation—we rarely look at those costs in full. And so, you know, again, sort of part of part of my experience, having sort of studied this field for you know two decades, was saying I, I, I'm used to looking at these problems from this kind of abstracted perspective. But that is that is part of the trap here. It, it's it's actually what it requires of us is to see the landscapes, the places, and the people who are being affected. By these sorts of decisions, who are sort of defined as the mere externalities. You know, only then can we actually make a decision of is this worth it and where is it worth it? Because otherwise we're simply believing this idea that all AI is going to be taking us to, you know, the, the promised land of the future, when in fact it's in so many ways grounded in, in the logics and the data of the past.
1: In the same chapter, you write on the history of of the early efforts at statistical analysis which fed into the emergence of of computers. And you write about the way that process was entwined with the project of Western colonialism. And in particular, you write about Carl Pearson, the founding figure of, of statistics, and how he believed that his statistical methods could and ought to be utilised in the project of eugenics, which I think is, is probably pretty surprising to people, given that I think a lot of people tend to think there's a very sharp divide between so-called pseudosciences, such as, such as race science, and more respectable science. So could you talk a bit about the development of statistics, and, and about Pearson in particular, and, and the relevance of, of both his statistical work, but also his, his racism to the emergence of, of AI?
0: Well, you've raised a, a really core theme in the book, which is that we have to actually go back to these histories to see how they are entwined in the technologies of the present. And, and certainly, if, if we look to some of the ways in which AI is used in, in quite phrenological pursuits, such as, for example, looking at pictures of people's faces and predicting whether or not they could be a criminal that's you know a paper that was published a couple of years ago or again looking at people's faces to determine uh, their sexuality or their character or their suitability for a job again these are systems that currently exist and we can trace these back to some of the early sort of biometric eugenicists and you know Carl Pearson is one but of course he was an acolyte of Sir Francis Galton who you know came up with the term eugenics and of course is, is you know the father of, of statistics in this sense, and this relationship, of course, To the idea of correlation, which was so core to their project. Not just, you know, and and this was particularly true of Pearson, to sort of expand these ideas of causality and correlation beyond the natural sciences and and into the way in which sort of humans reproduce and function in the world. I mean, this is where you know we can see that the true horror of, of the eugenic project. But honestly, you know, it's such a rich and important set of topics that we go back to understand the relationship between. And statistical methods and, and ways of seeing the world. And there is in fact a fantastic new book that will be coming out in a few months by Wendy Chun called Discriminating Data that focuses exactly on these relationships. And she has this, this wonderful way of talking about this sort of history and she makes it very clear that obviously the use of statistical methods are not developed by eugenicists so are not necessarily eugenicist. But what you can do is look at these sorts of relationships in this history between the way in which the world is understood and making the future coincide with the sort of selectively discriminatory past. And And let, let me explain what, what that means. I mean, certainly something that Wendy and I have talked about for some time is this core problem in machine learning which is that you know if we look at the way that you create say a, a supervised machine learning system is that you give it an enormous amount of training data which is labeled often you know by crowd workers for pennies on the dollar and that becomes your ground truth now obviously if you know that data is looking at sort of Police arrests in New York from sort of 1995 to 2010, and we're looking at periods that then correlate, you know, with the stop and frisk program. You know that that data is telling a very skewed story around the ideas of, you know, risk and threat and crime in a city. But this very obvious formulation is, is nonetheless ignored time and time again when data from the past is, is seen to be some sort of clear, neutral ground from which to generate systems and the ways in which, again, so-called what used to be called big data, which has become in many ways the substrate for artificial intelligence, you know, those ideas in big data around sort of correlation. We can just see, you know, we can see correlations and we can draw forms of inference from that without having to think about where they might be coming from is, is part of this core problem that I think takes us all the way back to Galton and Pearson.
1: On that use of data to effectively profile people that you, that you describe. So you have a chapter in the book where you write a lot about facial and speech recognition systems and, and the, and the data sets that they depend on, as, as you describe there, and on speech recognition, you write about the speech recognition group at IBM research and and how hard it was for them to come by data sets in their early years. And you describe how they created their datasets from sources such as recordings of antitrust lawsuits brought against the company and, and you also write about how the reams of communication and in, in the uh, Enron scandal became a major re- resource for such data sets. Why were they drawing on these particular data resources? Were they simply what there was to hand and and what were the consequences? of developing speech recognition AI from these very unusual sources.
0: Well, to, to understand that, I mean, I think we have to go back to what was happening in the 1970s and 1980s, when artificial intelligence researchers were moving away from what were known as expert systems approaches towards these more probabilistic or brute force techniques. And one of the really key industrial examples was IBM Research and the speech recognition group that was headed by Fred Jelinek and Lalit Bahl, Peter Brown, and, and Robert Mercer, in fact, as well, of course. This was before Mercer became a billionaire, and it was associated with funding, you know, Cambridge Analytica and Breitbart News and Donald Trump's election campaigns. He was, you know, back in the old days working in this speech recognition group, and and what they did is that they focused on using statistical methods rather than linguistic principles to understand language. So you'd look at how often words would appear in relation to one another, rather than trying to teach a computer to understand a grammatical principle. So, in, in order to do that, you're really doing really large-scale pattern recognition, which requires an enormous amount of real speech and text data. And, uh, you know, here I want to sort of particularly give a shout out to a fantastic study of the of this IBM group that was done by Chow Cheng at Stanford. And, and she sort of writes about the way that this produces this kind of radical reduction of speech to data. So, you know, the sort of the object of study ceases to matter. It's its exi- existence as data itself. And in order to do this, of course, you have to have you know, large amounts of text data, but that was actually really difficult to do. You know, particularly in sort of the, the late 1960s and early 1970s, and they tried lots of different ways to get text. You know, they tried IBM technical manuals, which you know, surprise, surprise, were very far from everyday speech. Then they tried children's novels. They tried patents. But actually, it was a it was in fact a, a major antitrust lawsuit that was filed against IBM that went for 13 years and had you know over a thousand witnesses that became the kind of jackpot for the group because it contained this sort of corpus of over 100 million words. And so there you start to see the seeds of later problems being planted. We start to see these sort of text archives being applied as though they are neutral collections of language, as though there's this sort of general equivalence between, you know, the words that people might use on a witness stand to the words you might use if you're, you know, chatting to to someone in sort of everyday life and the idea that all text and images can be just interchangeable as training data without their rich cultural context or specificity. But of course, you know, language and images are not inert substances, you know, that just can be applied, you know, wherever without importing their histories and their meanings. You know, I think that's something that that George Lakoff has sort of captured perfectly, when he sort of writes about the fact that there's no neutral ground for language. And the same is also true for images. So we sort of see this sort of shift towards moving from an image or a piece of text to an infrastructure. And that becomes the basis of so much of what is now understood as contemporary machine learning, which is that effectively we have these data sets of images and text where their origins have been erased and that in, in the types of biases or classificatory politics, more importantly, that they contain are ignored and it's just seen as this sort of inert substance.
1: And what would be an example of the negative consequences of those forms of classification that are disavowed and obscured in that
0: way? So I'll give you two examples. I'll give you a historical one and a more contemporary one. One of the historical ones that, you know, continues to shock me comes from a group called NIST. That's the National Institute of Standards, the main US government agency that works on these sorts of, you know, technical test beds, if you will. And after September 11, NIST becomes part of the US government plan to create sort of biometric standards to track people entering the US. And it becomes a sort of turning point in facial recognition. It sort of drives this much bigger demand for these techniques. And so NIST creates these databases which contain thousands of photographs of deceased people with multiple arrests, ultimately mugshots of people sort of going through repeated encounters with the criminal justice system. And they become this kind of standard system that's used to test your facial recognition algorithms to sort of compare their algorithmic accuracy. But I actually you know looked at these databases and went and sort of looked at the images which of course is is not what they're designed for they're designed for sort of you know machine vision but these of course are people and and the people you know who are clearly distressed some are injured you know some are you know crying these are just horrific images with no context or caveats, and they've just been used as a technical infrastructure. And I think here you can see this kind of, uh, again, the beginning of of this complete abrogation of consent. You know, consent is no longer relevant. It's the emergence of a logic that everything is data and it's just there for the taking even these tragic images. And then we can sort of fast forward to, you know, a more contemporary example, which is something like ImageNet. Now, ImageNet is the colossus of object recognition in AI. It's, probably the most well-known training data set. It contains over 14 million images. They've all been scraped from the internet. So you might be in there, Alex. You know, many people (laughs) I've I've sort of discovered by working with that data set that you, you commonly find people who you know who've been scraped from different contexts. And these images have then been sort of labeled into categories. You know, some categories, you know, are for, you know, animals and plants and cars. And then, of course, there's this category for people. And it was in the people category that, that you, you find some of these, again, logics playing out in, in the most horrific ways. And in a project with the artist Trevor Paglin, we spent two years sort of really digging into the layers of ImageNet to sort of see the logics that were being used to order these images and to label them. And we created a project called Excavating AI, really because it did feel like a form of excavation. You know, we were sort of trawling through these material layers of of, of thousands and thousands of images. And what's interesting is that, you know, ImageNet is, is based on an earlier training set of words called WordNet, which came from Princeton in the 1980s. And what ImageNet did was just take the nouns and then apply them to images and to, to ask crowd workers to, again, to attach these words as labels to images, sometimes as many as sort of 50 labels a minute. they were sort of asked to sort of quickly sort of associate words with images. And what you get is this sort of bizarre kind of collection of, Images that in many cases make no sense. You know, you've got some concepts which simply aren't visual. Like, for example, there's a category for debtor. You know, how can you tell from somebody's face, you know, sort of the relationship to the bank account? Um, And then, of course, you you find nouns that may seem fairly... You know, unproblematic, like you know, uh, you might have one for chief executive officer, but when you start to look at the images and you start to see, oh, most of these images are of men and they're of white men. White men in a suit. Yeah, you're right. You start to see, ah, I see. There's a classificatory politics at work here, and then, of course, as you go, the words move from sort of being descriptive to being judgmental. So you start to see sort of the use of terms like. Bad person, kleptomaniac, closet queen, alcoholic, and then of course, you know, a series of extremely racist and misogynistic terms that completely chart the course of, of every word you can think of, which are then attached to images of people scraped off the internet. So, of course, these people have no idea that you know their name is associated with you know a, a racist epithet, but there it is in one of the most famous training sets in the history of AI. So, in, in doing this, what we saw was, of course, this. Problem that's known as "quote unquote" bias in AI is, is is really just the tip of the iceberg. That that's looking at the outputs of these technical systems, and what we've been doing is really looking at the inputs, looking at these systems of knowing, these politics of knowledge that are shaping these systems. And you can see them in these layers of data and labels. You can see them in the way that people are being classified as objects. You can see it in the way that, you know, gender in so many systems is used as a sort of a binary or the way in which sort of race is used as something that you can attach based on you know the image of someone's face and then applied to you know one of four categories. I mean, these, these absurd kind of, again, highly kind of colonialist traditions of, of population classification being reborn again in these technical systems that are supposedly futuristic in their orientation.
1: Yes. And these are having very significant real world effects in terms of, for instance, racial profiling at airports associated with the national security services and, and, and so on. And there's a kind of a, a vicious circle going on whereby the AIs make it more likely that you're going to be picked up by these systems if, if you uh, fit the profile, which in and of itself, then makes you more likely to be apprehended again by law enforcement agencies and so on.
0: Exactly right. It, it's it's the uraburos of, of AI. And, and we see this happen time and time again, is that these sort of data sets that were premised on particular types of, you know, racialized and gendered logics and logics of, of oppression and marginalization are then sort of again reinforced through technical systems, baked in, if you will, sort of reproducing and and tightening the ratchet that already existed in terms of, you know, which populations were surveilled, which populations were imprisoned. And again, that's the legacy that we're living with today.
1: In the 1920s, Americans consumed 75% of the world's rubber, but only 1% of it grew under the US flag. Empire of Rubber tells a sweeping story of capitalism, racial exploitation, environmental devastation and resistance as the Firestone Tyre and Rubber Company transformed Liberia into America's rubber empire. Historian and filmmaker Greg Mittman unearths a history of promises unfulfilled, revealing a history of racial segregation and medical experimentation that reflected Jim Crow America. As Firestone reaped fortunes, wealth and power concentrated in the hands of a few elites, fostering widespread inequalities that fed unrest and eventually civil war. Empire of Rubber, Firestone's scramble for land and power in Liberia by Greg Mittman, is coming soon from the new press. If we turn to another chapter in the book, so you have a chapter on labour, and and you describe visiting an, an Amazon fulfilment centre in New Jersey, and so much of the discussion around automation tends to be in terms of the extent to which automation will render workers unnecessary to the productive process, but you write in the book that you're you're less interested in in, in that question, and are more interested in the way in which. In places like Amazon's fulfillment centers, people are, as you put it, increasingly treated like robots and what that means for the role of labor. So could you talk about what your impressions were of the fulfillment center and and in particular the treatment of workers by by management and how workers were interacting with and, and coping with Amazon's automated systems?
0: For me, this was a a transformative experience, certainly. I think in some ways the Amazon Fulfillment Center has become a type of emblem of, you know, contemporary blue collar work. But in, in actual fact, I think it it stands for so much more. It actually relates to a complete sort of ethos around how work is compartmentalized and managed, um, the relationship of, of time to labor and the relationship of bodies to algorithmic systems. So the one that I visited was in Robbinsville in New Jersey. And, and it was interesting because, of course, one of the first things I noticed when I walk in is, is the extraordinary sound. These are so loud these places, just a like constant roar of machinery. It's it's at a sort of completely sort of inhuman level. In fact, you know, to go into these places, you have to be wearing extremely heavy duty headphones. You know, just to sort of get by. But even then, you're sort of dealing with sort of constant roar. But you know, this of course is one of the the major distribution warehouses in the eastern side of the United States, and it's sort of this dizzying spectacle of logistics and standardization. And it's, it's all there around sort of accelerating this delivery of packages. But one of the things that was sort of really noticeable is the sort of signs that sort of at every corner that say time clock. So, you know, workers known as associates, in fact, have to scan themselves. Yes, they're associates of the fulfillment center. I mean, the language is, is really something else. You scan yourself as soon as you come in, you sort of go through metal detectors you know, as you go in and as you go out to make sure you're not, you know taking things away and you sort of see the sort of constant sort of feature of time clock sort of underscoring that you know you're scanning in and out of break rooms and you know in and out of each machine that you're working on. So just as the packages are being sort of scanned in the warehouse, so too are the, the workers constantly being scanned and, and monitored for, for producing the, the, the greatest possible efficiency. And as you know has been reported by, by many journalists who've, who've also been in these spaces, you know you have a very limited amount of time that you can be off task you have you know very short meal breaks there are these giant dispensing machines that are full of painkillers and of course by working in these spaces it's it's extremely sort of physically taxing and i saw many people Wearing, you know, support bandages and, you know, clearly you know, carrying injuries, but it's actually the psychological piece that that was also really striking, which is that you know you're working in relationship to a screen that's sort of tracking your your what's called picking rate, the the rate at which you're actually getting to move objects from one place to another, and that that sense of pressure of sort of making the rate is something that you know is is such a, a profound and horrifying experience, and something that again now you know the the push to unionization with an Amazon, which is, you know, continually being beset by management and and I think in many ways undercut by Amazon and other companies. But the unions will actually, and the people seeking to unionize will tell you that this is a really common experience of extreme worker stress. And again, we can look to how these, these types of algorithmic management software, also known as bossware, is, of course, moving into many other kinds of labor, into you know, spaces of, of white collar labor, as well as, as sort of these more traditional sort of working class spaces. It's sort of throughout the working ecosystem. And now, of course, in a pandemic, when so many people, you know, those who are lucky, are working from home, if they still have their jobs, are now being subject to these forms of surveillance and tracking through cameras, through, you know, tracking how many times they, you know, make sales or write emails, that there are these mechanisms and software platforms now to compare worker to worker, to sort of make recommendations on, you know, who to hire and who to fire. So, again, that sort of deepening of these logics into the experience of contemporary work is something that was certainly clear then, and and I think in many ways it's, it's only more accelerated now.
1: You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month, and if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll other to sign up. Thanks for listening.